Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 394 and my guest is Charles McCutcheon. Charles is recovering from a double lung transplant as a result of long COVID. He's a music industry veteran and has worked with absolute legends. Mind-blowing. He was born in Ireland, he lives in Nashville, and he has traveled many, many miles and had many, many adventures in between. I've known Charles a really long time. I adore him and his wife, Alicia. I'm really excited to share this, and I'm so happy that his transplant was a success and that he's on the road to recovery and on the mend. I mean, my gosh, what an experience that he had to endure and what a blessing that it's that thing of, you know, out of one person's tragedy comes another person's miracle. And it's a, it's a stark reminder of how precious life is all around. Okay, check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, wherever you get your music. And by the way, I just realized uh, the other day, I've had Hey Human Podcast on iHeart for many years and... I got this little voice in my head saying, check your iHeart. And I did, and it wasn't on there. So I re-put it on there. For those of you who are used to iHeart podcasts, you can find it again. It is there. I don't know what happened. There was a glitch in the matrix, but it is back, baby. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify. It's in all the places. Well, mostly all the places. Thank you for listening. Be well. Be kind, stay healthy, be love, and here we go. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. How are you, honey? Good. Well, better than I was a few months ago. Yes, I know. Such a crazy story. You look great. Well, I'm, I feel as if I'm getting stronger and better and fitter. It's, it's very strange because I'm, I'm, I'm literally on, on uh, six foot tall. 72 inches, as, I, as they say on my medical chart. I am at the moment 157 pounds in weight, which is skinny uh, for, a, for a, um, a six-foot human, as you would say. But when I, was, when, when I had my transplant uh, on September the 2nd, I was 126 pounds. So I literally was, I, 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 the, I say to people when they ask me about um, the qualification process and the protocols and whatever. The thing that nearly knocked me out at the end from being a candidate and getting transplanted was um, uh, was body mass index. And they they will not transplant a person if their body if mass index, their BMI, uh, falls below a seventy point five is the cutoff. And I was eighteen point two. So I was, I was actually, I was heading downwards in terms of um, BMI uh, for the for the previous year and a half. So uh, um, I mean, they warned me straight up, you know, that um, I wouldn't have made it through Christmas, the new year, um, with the deterioration as it was happening at that speed and uh, in those circumstances. So I was, I was very lucky to get uh, uh, to get through it. 
and get transplanted and get the call. Well, I get the call and then transplanted at the time I was. Yeah, well, we're going to get into all of that. First, let me welcome you. Charles McCutcheon, welcome to Hey Human. Hi. Hi, love. You're a dear friend. We've known each other a long time. We have. We have. And it's been, uh, it's been a wonderful process just seeing how you've evolved as well. Well, I appreciate that. But we're here to talk about you. <laughs> so let's get into it. Tell me a little bit about, tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up, childhood, where you came from, what, what brought you here. I'm Irish by birth and um, was born in Oma in uh, County Tyrone in Northern Ireland um, and uh, lived there. I was the youngest of seven children. I lived with, obviously, with my family, and uh, we, my father and mother, decided to relocate to to England, back into the UK, um, when I was five years old, um, which was 1960. And I really, I grew up uh, in uh, the English military school system because my father had gone back into the Royal Air Force uh, from a very, very poor situation in Ireland after the Second World War, where um, where there were literally, like a lot of countries across Europe, there was a, a devastation of industry, a devastation of farms and livelihoods and whatever. So um, literally, my father had to make a, a difficult decision, but in, in retrospect, a brilliant decision to go back into, he was invited to go back into the military um, uh, in 1959 as both a mechanical engineer, but also because he was uh, uh, one of the RAF pipe majors. So he, was, he, he ran a number of Royal Air Force uh, pipes and drum bands, um, and there were very few of them. So he spent the next 20 years of or the last 20 years of his military life being pipe major to the Royal Air Force pipe band in England and in Germany. So we lived in, we went to live in England and then we ended up living in uh, uh, Lancashire up in the north of England near Manchester and Liverpool. Uh, and then we moved south down into near London, uh, near in Bedfordshire. And in between, we were sent off to Germany twice and uh, for a few years each time. And uh, so, uh, cutting a long story short, I grew up in England. I lost my Irishness very early on, which children tend to do when they're, when they're relocated at a young age. You know, the accent goes and their, their mannerisms and things go. But um, uh, I just became very English very, very early on. Yeah, your accent is one might consider posh or on the echelon of poshness yeah yeah i was that uh, partly because i was kicked off to you know boarding school at the young age and and that was really full of um obviously military children and uh, and and that tended to be a lot of children who were who were in fact a lot better off than we were but just the mannerisms and the colloquialisms and the and the, the language and the accents and whatever just it rubs off on children very, very early on, as you know. So uh, I really, from the ages of like nine to 15, 16, when I was at boarding school, I became very UK child. And uh, my Irish accent had, had gone a long time ago. So, uh, you know, I've kind of, I, I've enjoyed it, but suffered from it as well over the, the decades um, since, because it's just... You know, I, I, it, it confuses people as to where I'm from. And I'm forever having to explain that I'm Irish, 100% Irish, 
you know, don't, you know, don't ask me to 23, three me or whatever it is, because I know what it is. It's 99.9999, you know, Irish. So it's, um, that's my history and my background. Did you go to boarding school with your siblings as well? Or did you get sent on your own? I went to boarding school in Germany, uh, uh, two different, uh, a boys boarding school and a girls boarding school. My sister Isabel went to the girls boarding school. Uh, being the youngest, you know, by the time I was like eight, nine, ten years old, you know, my elder brothers and sisters were, uh, you know, in their late teens, early twenties. You tend to be isolated as a younger child in that kind of large family, particularly if you're moving around to different locations every three or four years when your father is moved to different camps and and, and different postings. You know, from the ages of 10 uh, onwards, from being at boarding school and whatever, you do learn a certain um, element of, of, of independence. And that's that, that helps you, even though it's a bit boring at the time because you miss your siblings. And in later life, it gives you a sense of strength and independence that um, you can rely upon. And you learn to stand on your own two feet, you know, very, very quickly. And it introduced me to my own love of music, even though was, uh, as, as youngsters in the family, we were always encouraged the girls were always encouraged to play the piano or the accordion, and the boys were always instructed to learn how to play the pipes or the drums. So by the time we got to England in the early 60s, you know, I lucked out. You know, we, we fell flat in our face right in the middle of Beatlemania. So, you know, I did not have to learn how to play the bagpipes well, even though I can, I can get by on them. Two questions. Did you enjoy your time at boarding school on an emotional level I, I understand it the rigors of it or the the independence facilitating part of it you enjoyed but did you ex did you experience a good feeling and my other question is did being Irish did you have a sense of because we we know that there is animosity that happens Scotland Ireland uh, Wales and and England and I'm curious if any of that figured into any of your decision to either let go of an accent or try to appear to be British. Um, well, in, in, in answering your first question about, um, uh, about going to boarding school and how it, how it affected me and that stuff, it, I, I really um, I, I enjoyed it. But I think in, in, in later life, you tend to look back at things with rose-colored glasses, and and you know you remember the great bits and the the the, the good times. Um, but I do know there were times of 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 stress and and times of loneliness, and times of um, of uh, abandonment in some respects. And I think that a lot of kids feel that until they really get their sea legs and they find out that you know you can sit there and feel abandoned and you can feel left alone or whatever as much as you want but you're in exactly the same boat as everybody else in that school particularly when it's like a you know i went to a forces boarding school in germany so every other pupil there you know was from a forces family of some distinction or level or whatever so we were all basically in the same uh, boat in terms of you know, we, we, there had to be an element of support because we all understood that we were all going to be just be mates or friends for the next two or three years. And then we're all going to go our separate ways anyway. And there's a lovely thing on one of I, the school I went to in Germany, uh, which was called Windsor Boys School in Hamm in the Ruhr. One of the things that popped up on their, their website 
uh, uh, last year was that um, there was a wonderful study about how a child that went to a military boarding school actually makes and loses and, and moves on from more close friendships in the first 18 years of their lives, generally than any other comparable um, element of children um, time passages, so that you 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 meet so many people that you become friends friends with early on, but they they're gone from your life within two or three years unless you have the opportunity to stay in touch later on, um, or you end up moving to a, a, a another station somewhere in the world that they happen to be. So there was an element of loneliness, but it was and also. Uh, there's an immense sense of of, uh, of uh, community, at particularly forces boarding school, because it's not based upon status. It's not based upon social um, conditioning. It's not based upon how much money your parents have or whatever, or what they're paying for the school. You know, everybody there is a military brat. There's a balancing act between, you know, getting on with people or trying to be, you know, the top of the heap. And I never found that. And I, but, I, but I also found that, you know, I was incredibly lucky at, at, at being good at sport uh, and also good at, um, uh, at music and stuff. So I really wasn't bullied, you know. And the other thing was I, was I was the youngest of seven, of a family of seven. So by the time, you know, just to survive being the youngest of a family at seven, you, you learn how to take care of yourself or they teach you how to take care of yourself. So I, it was never, I was, there was never, I never, ever, ever experienced one element of bullying or anything like that or, or any unsettling behavior at the schools that I could reflect on and say that it was not managed or it was damaging. It really wasn't. But um, the one thing that did surprise me to, to, to allude to your second question was, is that with the Irish, Scottish and the Welsh delineation, let's call it from the English, that really as anyone will know, that basically is the is the result of uh, of wars and and invasion and and uh, imposition and and such. But you know, when we first came across from Ireland to England, uh, for example, I had never seen a black person in my life. Uh, they just, God bless them, they had not made it to um, to the Irish island where we lived. So I literally, you know, uh, it, at school in Lancashire for my very first school, and my um, uh, kindergarten, I suppose you'd call it, literally uh, two, of my, two of my closest friends for a number of years after that were two Jamaican boys, you know, who had their parents had come across to England from the Caribbean and from Jamaica in the 50s for economic uh, reasons and whatever. And they just assimilated into British life. They were my first friends, but I'd never seen any black people in my life before. But the other thing, that was a kind of a happy coincidence, a happy situation that I fell into and enjoyed immensely. The When I was old enough to understand it, I also experienced the other side of that pendulum, which was the utter hatred that existed towards not only the immigrant West Indian population, the, the, the immigrants from at that time were, were predominantly either Indian or they were West Indian um, from the Caribbean. But there used to be, uh, there were signs in shops and places like that that actually said, you know, no blacks, no Jews, no Irish and no dogs. So, and, and I, I, I literally, I have to this day, uh, a, a photo of one of those signs that existed in great in England 
um, I should say, not Great Britain, but in England in those early days of the 60s. And it was a it was a prevalent attitude. So it wasn't just discrimination against one particular color, but there was a there was a a, a racial discrimination against uh, Irish and Jews and poor dogs as well. So it was, it was incredibly difficult for I think the adult population of a lot of economic immigrants who came to England in those days because there was such a superiority attitude from the from the English to as they say you know keep England white so we we did you know as being Irish we felt that you know we we really did feel that um, you were isolated in in communities that were predominantly Irish or your friends were I mean I look back on it you know and and realize that I had so many Jewish friends and I had so many West Indian friends that it didn't seem anything but normal to me. But I realized later, as I learned about the delinquent history, let's say, it was just viral through the, through the English nation that um, there should be that discrimination. And I do believe that it's got an awful lot better and much, 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 much kinder and more decent and evolved. But it, was, it's, it is certainly, there, there are still pockets you know, there are still, you know, and we know that around the world, but I think it's, you you, you focus in on seeing it uh, in your own community. So, so yes, we did feel that there was exclusion. Um, uh, and, it, and indeed, one thing that gets um, Irish people through that, uh, that whole situation is the fact that we can add a layer of humour to any circumstances whatsoever. I don't care what happens in someone's life, we have a joke about it. So it's um, and it's generally self-deprecating, and uh, and it's 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 to it's to take away the sting and the stain of what it could be perceived as being, if you if you let it affect you. What facilitated your discovery of America and and decision to come to America? Um, well, that's another funny story because being Irish, you know, we love our music. You know, we, um, again, we can find an excuse to have any kind of party or Kaylee, uh, and there's always music. You know, it's, um, uh, I mean, one of the funny things I always used to, I say to people now, because I, you know, I, I've, I've played the guitar and written songs and, and uh, um, sung for years and years and years, but I always lighten things up by saying, you know, I know that I'm a folk singer because every time I stood up at family gatherings to sing, my father used to go, oh, folk. At least I think that's the word he used. So, <laughs> really, I um, I got involved literally after high school. I was, I was supposed to go to military college when I was 18, 19 years old. And I'd been accepted and I was, you know, I was heading off down a military career path, which I was very excited about because I always wanted to fly. And I was, I lived on Air Force camps all my life. So I was surrounded by aircraft and aviation and engineering and whatever. So that was really my love of doing it. But I, cutting a very long story short, when I was waiting to actually, I had to wait a year before going to military college. And uh, I got a friend of mine, got me an interview with a, with a record label in London. And the only reason I got the interview was because I was the only person that he knew well 
who knew anything about music. He only got me the interview because he was trying to make himself look good in the eyes of his boss. He was working in the recruitment business. I was fulfilling a need for, for him, but it actually set me on a destiny course that I could never have expected uh, as a young boy. So I ended up working for a feeder label uh, called UK Records, part of the Decca Records group, which is probably then with EMI, the biggest uh, label group in the UK. I had no, no ambition of ever getting through uh, an interview. To, you know, I just you, you just feel at that age that there's going to be an enormous amount of people far better qualified than you who are going to get, you know, uh, pre-selected and also, quite frankly, live closer and are more convenient. So I never expected to get the job, but I did by fluke. And then I, I went on to record promotion for UK Records for about a year before they realized that I was a crap record promotion guy. But But I was actually quite good at dealing with the press and with the media. Uh, Jonathan King, who owned the label, got me uh, into Decca Records as an assistant press officer when I was 20 years old. You know, so I was incredibly lucky. And Decca was an amazing label to uh, to work for. Where we had some extraordinary stones were still on Decca in those days. You know, so and uh, there was some remarkable people, remarkable bands. And and I I literally I took to being a publicist and being a press officer like the proverbial duck. To water i just loved it and also because i you know i went in there knowing a lot about what what alternative music is now and also and also i knew an awful lot about folk music and country music because i was irish that was the music we listened to i ended up leaving decca i was headhunted and went to work at warner brothers as a as a press officer which had even the better art you know artists incredible people crosby stills dash were just you know zz top journey mitchell uh, just extraordinary artists. The Doobie Brothers had just been launched. I was there, and uh, they started to work with a number of artists coming out of the States, coming over to Europe, and, and out of Nashville in particular. You know, I was working with some extraordinarily cool people at Warner Brothers. Just loved it there. But they, once they found out that I knew a lot about country music, I became the go-to country music person. And so literally at 21, 22 years old, they were sending me over to America because no one else, they were all too damn cool for school to be seen anywhere near Little Feet, you know, or some of the other artists, you know, it was just, uh, you know, Jimmy Buffett, you know, they just, they had no idea what to do with someone like that. I really got to know Nashville pretty early on in my life, in my in my career. So and I loved it. And I started to get a reputation in in England and Europe as being a country music, an alternative music PR. Again, because everyone wanted to work, you know, with the the great English bands. And they missed out so much. You know, they they you know when people originally thought that Crosby Stills Nash and Young were were a country band. You know, Poco was a country band and you know it was to my benefit. Uh, and then I got offered a job working in independent PR. And I left Warner Brothers to go to work for an independent PR company. But I was working with The Who. I was working with Deep Purple. I was working with, you know, Uriah Heep. I was working with with Leo Sayer, you know, and, and some extraordinary people. Mark Boland before he died. You know, I was in a status quo, one of my favorite bands in the world. So I I'd kind of bailed out from from corporate Warner Brothers and went to work independently. But then 
when when I was working independently, um, ABC Records in London came along and said, you know, we know we're not going to try and drag you away from being independent, but would you, could you, can you, would you run our press department, publicity department at the same time? And I thought, well, I know I can do it, but, you know, I'm going to have to just get permission. My two uh, bosses, two of the greatest PRs in music history in England, in uh, Keith Olsen, in particular, um, who was who's been the number one music PR in Great Britain literally all his life. He said yes, you know, and he said, you know, off you go and do it. He said, you know, we'll give you all the support we can. So I ended up getting involved, very involved with ABC. And obviously ABC Dot Records in Nashville was a huge country label. And we launched a bunch of artists, you know, we, you know, with people like Don Williams, you know, we had like seven or eight or 10 gold platinum albums in Europe with him and uh, Billy Joe Spears, we sold, you know, three gold albums and uh, um, just, you know, Freddie Fender, we had a big success with him over there. And, and so I, I love that uh, because it also got me involved with um, some great blues and R&B artists. You know, and I had great fun working with uh, with BB King in particular, with you know Harold Melvin, the Blue Notes, the Chi Lights, um, the Four Tops, who were just so much fun on tour and, and just great, great people. So it was, a, and I was very, very lucky. So I got to know Nashville really, really early on, and then uh, Jim Halsey, um, the manager entrepreneur from Tulsa. Uh, had the Jim Halsey Company, which was the biggest country music management group in, in in America, and then he asked me to run his London office. So you know, I had a lot of hats, but they were all interconnected, and they were all of benefit to each and every one. So I, I literally I started to spend a lot of time in Nashville, and this is all the way through the seventies into the start of the eighties. I was married in seventy five, but sadly, my wife and I divorced literally because we kind of lost touch with each other. You know, I was, I was away so much, so often. It was, you know, it was, we became different people. Um, it's not something I'm, you know, desperately proud of, but if, I, if what had, had not happened in the way that it happened, then I wouldn't have met my wife. Apparently, I would not have met Alicia. And that, that was in Nashville. And we love Alicia. I know. Gosh, she is probably your biggest fan in the world. and she. Oh, I love her so much. She's so great. My life would have been somewhat emptier without having those opportunities to be here in Nashville, in the USA. It was all meant for a reason. And I'm a, I, you know me, I'm a, big, I'm a big believer in faith. And I do believe that you get, you follow where you're led. And, I, and that's what, in a part of it was just dumb luck. Part, I know it was part of it was just, you know, oh, shit, that sounds good. I'll do that. But that's saying yes. That's saying yes when the opportunity arises. Because a lot of people don't say yes. They start to overthink or think, oh, I don't know how to do this. Or what happens if this happens? And they worry about all the things. But you're, you leap. You leap in. Oh, I do. I do. Both feet. And tr I try not to do it stupidly. But I have done it stupidly on a couple of occasions and landed flat on my face. So Sure. It's, it's, and that's just a process of learning and, you know, dusting yourself off. And uh, every success story has a, a mass of failures attached to it, whether people like it or not. And, and Nashville uh, and, and England and France literally then became home for Alicia and myself for uh, years and years. So we, we had a beautiful, charmed life. But it was, you know, it's only charmed when you work hard at it. 
you know, that's what I found. You know, I know people talk about, you know, luck and this and that and the other, but, you know, I, as what do they say? That I became, I became luckier the harder I worked. <laughs> yes. Yes. My father has a saying, opportunity knocks, it doesn't nag. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. An opportunity is very fickle. You know, you start, you start, you know, thumbing your nose at it. It doesn't stay around long. That's very true. I imagine with all of these bands, your stories must be incredible. You must have a vault of the wildest. Yeah, we. I, story. I mean, I the, the highlights of my life when I was an independent PR um, when I left ABC because I just you know they they were going through this corporate you know, a restructure in the, in the early 80s and, and whatever. And it just was becoming, everything you wanted to do became a meeting, you know. And it was like, I, you know, I'm like a lot of people uh, of my background in this industry. You know, I meetings should be five minutes. Agreed. <laughs> I didn't want to do the, the corporate thing. And, I, and also, um, in the mid-70s, I became very friendly with uh, Stephen Bishop the singer-songwriter. And Stephen was a great friend of Eric Clapton's and, and, and Patty Boyd, his wife. And consequently, Eric and Patty became good friends of mine. And then I started to work for Eric. I got involved at Warner Brothers with George Harrison's Dark Horse label through Derek Taylor, who was the head of special projects at Warner's, but he'd also been the Beatles PR for 15 years. So I'm incredibly lucky. You know, to get involved with those people and to be accepted and to be um, welcomed. So I was really, and loads of things that I've, you know, thankfully I kept a diary and a, and a journal. So I managed to recall and remember and keep many of them uh, written down. And I've been actually very, very lax in in having the the confidence to actually uh, write them all out and do do a book and things like that and uh, and I think half of that is because I you know I come from very humble background so you know there's always this you know keep yourself keep your feet on the ground and 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 do not go down that road of, of self-aggrandizement and stuff like that you see so much that you should and would and will and and, and have to be uh, confidential is not the word I would use but you have to be respectful you know, there's a lot of people who who are extraordinarily successful artists now went through a lot of weird, horrible stuff. And so it's it's important not to be seen to be uh, profiting from that kind of uh, stuff. And, I, and, I, and, I've, and I've, I've kept away from writing, you know, articles and books and things like that, because, you know, I love these people and they, you know, they took care of me and they were brilliant friends. I'm doing something for the family. The one story that I would never leave out of, of anything I wrote was the fact that until I met Keith Moon, I never drank alcohol. Alcohol. I was a sports fanatic, but when I went into independent PR with Keith Altham, I think he kind of just, you know, kicked me over to Keith Moon because he wanted to get rid of Keith. So, so, so you know, he said, like, no, you'll be responsible for him. Da, 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 da. And I did not drink. And there was an album out in 76 or something like that. It was called The Who by Numbers. And we were doing the, uh, the the PR for that. And I had to I had to do a day of interviews with Keith, which was always in a pub or always in a bar somewhere. You know, So I just rounded up a whole bunch of my uh, journalist friends from the music press and the national press. And we just met Keith in a, in a, a pub. It's called the Brewmaster Pub in Leicester Square in England. 
And uh, we just played snooker and pool for the whole afternoon. But um, Keith was determined that everyone was going to have a drink. And uh, I, I, I literally, it was the first time after knowing him for a year or so that he found out that I didn't drink. And so he, uh, he, he basically, in front of everybody, threatened to kill me if I didn't drink. And he then lined up every drink in the pub, on the bar, in little shot glasses, and was just stood there and said, we're staying here, and we're going to find something you like to drink, or I will kill you. His exact words were, I'm not going to have a PR working with me who doesn't drink. Oh, <laughs> it, <no. laughs> it would be disastrous. So literally, I'm you know, manfully, I had to... Uh, I, I literally had a sip of every damn thing on the bar. And to my utter horror and to his utter horror and my disgrace, the only thing that I found that I liked was called cherry brandy. <laughs> he thought the most appalling thing that he'd ever heard in his life. And I only liked that because my mother used to drink it at, uh, at Christmas. She loved a glass of her cherry brandy. So at least I tasted it so I knew what was coming. But um, but literally after I never drank until until those until that day, and then I started, you know, I I drink a, sh a beer shandy, which was but you know it'll be an English an English beer with some lemonade on, it, uh, which is very very refreshing, I have to say. And then literally I I, I drank wine for most of my life. So uh, you know it was um there were there are some incredible life changing stories. But see, that's a great story and it hurts no one, I feel like. And John Velasco, our mutual friend, always says, you can write about anyone once they're dead, but you can write about it from your own personal experience, not a throw them under the bus or tell tales out of school, but how it shaped you individually as a person to be in the orbits of these people. I know. There's John, uh, John Velasco and I are both waiting for certain people to pass away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he has. Boy, does he have stories. I got to get him on the show, but he won't, he won't spill the tea either. <laughs> no, no, he and I worked at um, uh, Jet Records in London together. I did, I did some independent PR for Jet when, um, when ELO were on the label and uh, um, Roy Wood and Wizard and a whole bunch of other people. They were owned by uh, a remarkable guy, lethal man called Don Arden, who is Sharon Osborne's father. And so, and Sharon, who was then Sharon, um, uh, Sharon Arden in those days, she left the family home basically to go off and, and to manage um, Ozzy Osbourne and Black, and Black Sabbath. And John and I worked at Jet Records at the same time. And we often sit, even with Alicia sitting with us, we just look at each other and say, there'll come a day when we can tell some of these stories. So... Oh, yeah. I've heard a few of the Black Sabbath stories from John. You know, my lips are sealed, but oh, my Lord. Uh, oh, there, there are others. You know, Legend. I think legendary. Maybe the two of you could write a book together. It will just be incredible. I, yeah, can, can you imagine? I mean, just it's, it's, it's life defining some of those things. And yeah. They're, they're, they're incredibly funny. But also, yeah. um, uh, some of them are just demonstratively tragic as well when you see what happened to some of the people who were co as consequences of some of the, the the tragedy that happened keith being a good example oh god i know well less than two years after he was you know trying to pour alcohol down my throat you know he died on a sofa you know it was it was incredibly sad and he was the loveliest kindest 
person. I mean, you don't, you, you, you always wanted him as a friend. You did not want him teed off at you, but he was the incredibly kind, decent person. And you've got to remember those, those people like Keith Moon and, and the who, and a lot of those stellar English rock guitarists and drummers and, and bassists and whatever, they were stars from their 16s and 17s, from their late teens. You know, they were genius from the time when people over here and in England were thinking of finishing high school. You know, so it was just that. Uh, and of course, Keith also died when he was 27. The age... 27 club, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and that kind of freaked me out for a little while. I was like, you know, good God, how many more? You know, so it's, um, but I found them to be incredibly kind um, and incredibly decent and lovely people. The majority, you know, 90% of the artists that, that certainly I worked with and I was involved with were lovely, lovely, kind people, but just insanely talented. As someone who grew up surrounded by Beatlemania, can you... Tell a quick synopsis of what that was like to be around. Well, I, I, I remember I was like 10 years old when A Hard Day's Night and, and Help and stuff like that came out. And my sister was a certifiable Beatle lunatic. I mean, she wasn't just a fan. She was absolutely obsessed with the Beatles. I, at, at 10 years old as a boy, you know, I was, I was kind of, you know, I love my music and things like that, but I was into... I was, I literally was, there was other bands that were coming along at that time. I was, you know, Buddy Holly was, it was huge. Roy Orbison had just had uh, big hits in the UK and uh, um, the Dave Clark Five were just um, starting off. In fact, the Dave Clark Five were, were signed to Decca in the early 60s as a preference to, the, to Decca signing the Beatles. So it was, you know, there's all these incredible bands coming along. And, uh, and I think, you know, because my father was very involved in organizing um, entertainment at the the RAF camps that we lived on, we, my sisters and I and my brothers got to meet quite a lot of artists. So, you know, and you gravitate towards those that you meet and they have to have an, effect, an impact on you. So my Beatlemania for me didn't get going literally until I went to boarding school uh, in Germany and my mother bought me a copy of Rubber Soul. And, uh, and I suddenly realized, first of all, they weren't going away. And secondly, you know, it, they weren't just a girly band. But Beatlemania was so top to bottom in terms of the community of, of Great Britain and Europe. It was really, it, even though they would deny it, people like my parents loved the Beatles. You know, they truly, truly did. My mum was a huge huge George Harrison fan. You know, she just thought he was adorable. Of course, every mother loved Paul. But Beatlemania was, it was obsession, but it was backed up by the fact that um, these guys were, weren't going away and they were writing some incredible stuff and they were writing, and they seemed to all be the kind of people that you'd like to meet, you know. And so um, it was, but my sister was, when A Hard Day's Night came out, you know, she was basically my, my caregiver <laughs> at, in those days because I was quite young. But she dragged me and my friend along to see A Hard Day's Night 11 times in six days. Ele oh, my God. That's what Beatlemania was. And the only reason we saw it 11 times in six days was because, you know, we'd have, we'd, we'd have enough money for one of us to get in 
and then that one would go and open the fire door at the other end of the theatre so that we could sneak in the, the other three. And then between shows, because there was such a quick changeover, we were small enough to hide under the seats so that the, so that the, the security wouldn't be able to find us. <laughs> So we could stay in and watch another one. So I love that. It was 11 times at the Bedfordshire, Bedford Granada Cinema. My sister dragged me along to see A Hard Day's Night. Wow. I feel like in modern day speak that the Swifties and their devotion to Taylor Swift is comparable. Oh, indeed. And, and maybe even more so because the Swifties mm. have a lot more disposable income. At their, at, their, at their, you know, we we had to use all sort of subterfuge and means by which to circumvent the fact that we were all broke. We were just kids who got, you know, I mean, some of the young children when they were at school in England every Monday, you would actually go to school with your parents would give you uh, what was called dinner money. So you had to every Monday give your dinner money in for your school lunches during the week, and it tends to add up. In those days, it was it was like five shillings, which is a good amount of money for a child. There were so many children during Beatlemania who were claiming that they were going home for school lunch, that they didn't give their school lunch money in, including me and my sister, so that we would be able to uh, save that money up to be able to go and do things that we wanted at the weekend, like get into cinemas and like buy records and things like that. So it was, there was, there was an underground deal going on with, with kids who knew what to do, but it was, it was rumbled because it, there were so many children not having school lunches that they realized that something must be going on somewhere because you just couldn't have three quarters of the kids going home this year for lunch that weren't going home for lunch the previous year. Oh, half the reason they could do it also is because they lived close to the school. You know, there was no school busing and stuff like that until later on or whatever. So you tend to walk or ride your bicycle to school. So it was Beatlemania caused all sorts of uh, mayhem in families. But but the Swifties, Swifties now, good Lord, their, their parents and their uncles and cousins and whatever are paying two grand for a ticket. The whole emphasis that you're talking about is the same. Right. And I mean, Taylor Swift, brilliant move on the, the movie theaters, not unlike the Hard Day's Night or Help, the way the Beatles yeah. made their movie. It's, it's a genius plan, really. Yeah, it is. Uh, but you have to have, I just, I don't understand why, I've never understood why the, why the Beatles could pull off the movie business where other bands couldn't, where the Stones couldn't, you know, where the Kinks couldn't, you know, where, where other artists just couldn't do it. Cliff Richard in England, who was our kind of, our version of Elvis Presley, and, and a genius talent himself, was probably the only other teen idol singer in, in Great Britain in those days who had successful movies. Indeed, asked that question, particularly of Derek Taylor, who was the Beatles PR in those early days, and then I worked with him at Warner Brothers, and he just said they got the, the price right, they shot the, the uh, movies in less than three months. I mean, you just can't imagine that. You know, it was basically just a hodgepodge of, of storyline and, and editing. But they got them in and got them out whilst the fire was still burning, if you see what I mean. So that, yeah, uh, Yellow Submarine must have taken some time. Yeah, because they did that themselves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I think that's one of the, the idiosyncrasies of our, of our business is, is that everyone... Um, looking out, looking out from the outside, looking in, there was always this perception that 
you know, if you were a pop star, if you were a rock star, you were basically loaded and you had an awful lot of money. And that certainly was not true um, whatsoever. You know, and it, was, it, took, it took maybe an average of 20 years for each of those artists to realize that they weren't spending their, the, the, the record label's money. They were spending their own money. Yeah, it's a very expensive loan. Yeah. <laughs> 60% loan or something crazy. Well, and also the fact that you you know you pay all the money back through your royalties. That's what I mean. It's a very pricey. If a label gave you a million dollars, people don't understand that you have to pay that money back. But the, the label takes their money off the top first, and then whatever earnings you make, yeah, that's where your payback comes from. So it's really a you're drowning from the get go. But also, to my mind, when I started to learn a little bit more about intellectual copyright and 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 misuse, the thing that 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 always devastated my head was is that you know they they give you a million dollars and you make the record and you go out and you promote it and you sell and blah, 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 and you pay it back before you earn any more money, but they still own the record. I mean, that to me was just extraordinary. It was right. I, I always use the analogy of. Um, uh, it was like going to a bank and borrowing a million pounds to buy a house, building the house, putting the roof on, and and paying the money back to the to the bank. But they still own the house. That to me did not make any sense whatsoever. And uh, and luckily, what happened with major rock artists, and I'm and I'm talking in going for jumping forward to the to the mid eighties. I'm talking about significant stars, you know, like like Clapton, like the Beatles, like like Elton John. And were basically, in terms of what you would call wealthy, they were broke. Anything they wanted, the record labels would buy for them and give to them, but that just went on their account and they had to repay it. Yeah. It wasn't until, obviously, CDs came along, and CDs had not been included in any previous uh, recording contracts that they were offered legally the right to ne- renegotiate and, and start to be paid decent royalties and that's what made them wealthy and then of course the labels caught on and made 360 deals and so then they were back to square one of course which is a few artists like springsteen who maintained uh his own intellectual property owning the masters of all his records i think dylan eventually bought back his records but i think springsteen had his masters from the start yeah i this is it there was a lot of and I, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but there's a lot of a difference between a lot of artists, Jagger and the Stones, you know, where, you know, after they got, after they got to like 68, 69, they realized that they had to change their whole situation financially in order to protect themselves because they, they had no money. And it, and it was also a time when, when bands like Pink Floyd were coming out. There were, there were great artists coming out of the universities. And a lot of the university guys had a, had, had much better education than a lot of the original um, pop star bands who came out from basically being teens and, and straight into uh, you know, the cesspit of, of, the, of that industry. And so it was only until, I always call it the Pink Floyd phenomenon and the Jagger phenomenon. I mean, Mick Jagger went to the London School of Economics and, and had a degree from there. So he finally realized that unless they get this under control, they're never going to make any money. A lot of the bands realized that with CDs coming up, they had something to work with and something to negotiate with. But also what they did is, and I know this because I spent years working with Deep Purple, 
who were then in the 70s, probably the biggest selling band in the world. And I know for a fact that the Deep Purple business model, uh, by necessity, had to be built around touring and had to be built around merchandise because that's one area where they could control the the inflow of income and and therefore give themselves a chance to at least be solvent because they certainly weren't making it out of uh, out of, of selling a million records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, modern day artists, I suppose, in class, schools like Belmont University, uh, where they teach music business, where that's an actual degree of art for artists, even yeah. that they learn from others' mistakes. Somebody like a Kenny Chesney who came out. I think he went to Belmont, came out with a marketing degree. Or no, he went to MTSU, maybe. Um, I know he, he was somewhere in Tennessee, but he um, came out of that with this marketing plan for himself and has stayed true to it. And it has, you know, served him quite well, obviously. Yeah. Taylor Swift is another great example, although she didn't go to school for it. She certainly understood from a young age the importance of marketing. <laughs> One of the things that we did for a lot of artists in the in certainly the seventies and the eighties through into the nineties was is that um, we would we persuaded against a lot of pushback. I have to say, we persuaded a lot of artists to invoke their re-recording rights because in the original. 50s, 60s, 70s record deals. There wasn't a break in terms of the the, the labels owned the masters, and that was it, perpetuity. But then a number of artists, it started with the Dave Clark Five, and Dave Clark was was one of the artists in England, very first, to do lease tape deals. And he did like three and five year deals for lease tapes, where the label would have them uh, ownership for marketing rights for certain territories uh, for a period of three to five years, with a sell-off period afterwards of maybe a year. But then the rights reverted back to the artists. But then the labels caught wind of that so they started to give the artists a bit more a bit more money and they increased the terms of the contracts for where they couldn't buy where they couldn't get it outright from the start they increased the terms of the the the, uh, contracts where they'd have a five-year or a seven-year exclusive or hour by album or a 10 album yeah exactly and that's how that all evolved but then after that the artists had a re-recording right and the whole theory of the industry was that no one in their right mind was going to be interested in a song that was recorded five or seven years ago. Any, anything in the future was just going to be new artists. There was going to be a new Beatles. There was going to be a new Stones. There was going to be a new this. Taylor, Taylor Swift says, hold my beer and re-records every record. You know, I love it. <laughs> and I think, I think that is perfectly right and proper for artists. Yeah. To do. I mean, you know, if, 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 the, if we were living in the the renaissance period you know you'd have people like me going to you know to uh, to painters going paint another one paint you know do the same one do it 10 times over because it's the only way that you can protect your your income and your livelihood you know can you imagine those can you imagine how much you know vincent van gogh would he wouldn't have been chopping his ear off and shooting himself in a field you know if he'd been able to earn money from his work to the degree that it is now well, let's say overused. Yeah. All right, let's toggle to, and I appreciate all these stories. It's so wonderful. Let's talk about your lungs, Uh, love. 
let's go through that journey. Tell me how that started and and where it ended up. Well, it, it partly goes back to life in in music as well, and, and the, the entertainment was because I, I I chose I made a choice early on. I was never going to smoke. First, primarily not because I was being pious. A lot of the kids that I went to school with. You know, I, it, and this is no different than any other young person. You make, you make a decision and you, you have an opinion about it. And I just didn't like half the, the kids that smoked, you know. So I wasn't doing it for any, you know, perceived forward-thinking medical reason or anything like that. I just, you know, they weren't, they, that wasn't my clan. And they smelt all the time. So I just didn't, that wasn't for me. So, and also I didn't take drugs, you know, spend a life in music. And, and, I, and I am not. You know, Mr. Clean, fancy, this, that. I'm just not. I've had fun. I've had a great time. But I just chose not to take drugs, primarily because, you know, early on in my career, I saw what it did to a bunch of people. You know, I mean, one of my dearest friends, who I got to know over a number of years um, from the band Badfinger, um, who, you know, assigned to Apple, they were just brilliant. I mean, they do, they do the majority of the, the, the backing um, vocals and the instruments on, uh, uh, on George's All Things Must Pass album. And Peter Ham, who was in Badfinger, great singer-songwriter, who co-wrote the Nielsen hit Without You, Peter, in a state of depression, hung himself. What, going back to not having any money, having sold five million records by the time he was 28 or something like that, both as a songwriter and as a performer, had no money, you know, and he ended up hanging himself. And, and, and the same thing happened with um, Tommy Evans, his co-writer on Without You, who was also a member of Badfinger. Then with Keith Moon, you know, dying his way. And then, and then, and then with Deep Purple, when Tommy Bolin, the guitarist, um, joined, he replaced Richie Blackmore in, in Deep Purple. And Tommy died in a drug overdose in a, a vomiting state in, in Florida. So, and it, it just, there was a bunch of people who were just keeling over. And it, it just scared me. I just did not want to do it. Have I been a little high? Yeah, I think so, because I've spent half my life in backstage and dressing rooms and things like that. But I've never wanted to do um, any of that stuff. So, cutting forward to your question uh, about the, the, the lung situation is Alicia and I, literally, I went for uh, um, a medical in 2019. The previous year, my medical had been fine. I had no issue. I'd been always very fit as an adult. The doctors noticed something, some clouding on one of my lungs, on my left hand, left lung, which had not been there before. They sent me for some uh, CT scans. They thought that there was some sort of fibrotic problem with the lung. And this was just at the time when COVID was just showing, raising its, its ugly head just before it, the full-blown COVID blow of 2020. And then in early 2020, I had a very, very bad um, bout of uh, gastric flu, gastric issues, gas. And this is before they were identifying gastric issues as being an identifier for COVID. So, and no one wanted me to go to the hospital, you know, they didn't want, you, don't, you didn't want to be intubated for a start. And so um, the doctors at St. Thomas's, where I was here in Nashville, basically said, uh, after the, after the high res scans of my lungs, they came back and said, you have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, IPF, which is basically, <laughs> I, my naivety, I said, you know, well, yeah, hey, what does that mean? And they went, and as straight as a die, they went three to five years. 
you know, which um, which <laughs> stopped me in my tracks slightly. And, uh, and I, because you know her, I'll explain to you that this call, this call from the doctor happened in the car when I was driving with Alicia. Oh my God! But I had the I had the phone on earpieces, so she could only hear my part of the conversation. So, having with the doctor having told me that I had three to five years to live max, I basically said to him, "Well, that doesn't that doesn't sound good. What's the next steps?" So, and I just went, uh, um, uh, um, "Ah, yes, fine." Da, da, da. At which point, put the phone down. Alicia said, "What was that all about?" <laughs> And because you know her, you'll understand this. But um, I didn't tell her for two weeks. I just I said that was just the doctor uh, setting me up for another CT scan. After all, two weeks of Alicia saying, "What's going on? What's going on? What's going?" On? I finally had to admit to her that it was um, that what he'd said. So she dragged me kicking and screaming back into him and the doctor and said, "You know, uh, I hear what you're saying. Don't believe it. Want a second opinion?" He very kindly. And very supportively said, I don't think we have the, the, the facilities here at St. Thomas that would, that would do you justice. And, um, would you mind if I, if I recommended a colleague of mine at, uh, the Vanderbilt Lung Institute? And so he did. So he got me into the Vanderbilt Lung Institute and they did their battery of tests and, and, and checks and, and they came back and said, we're not absolutely certain that you have um, the full-blown IPF, but you certainly have something called non-specific interstitial pneumonia, which is kind of the same thing, but it's just not as deadly and lethal. And would you would you be interested in coming into our lung and pulmonary study to get even better, deeper care and uh, and resources for this? So I said yes. They said the only drawback to it is is that if you come into it, you can only come into it and get the support we can supply if you agree to go into the lung transplant program, which I thought was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard in my life. I was going, what? You know, you, you do kind of go, moi? <laughs> That's not going to happen. But yeah, if, if I have to do it, I'll do it. But, you know, I can't see myself needing a, uh, a lung transplant. So uh, they obviously, you know, laughed under their breath and went, yeah, another one. <laughs> and I basically deteriorated from there. Over the next two years, I was under the health and care of the, the Vanderbilt Lung Institute. And literally, as you you didn't know, and so many of so many of our friends and, and dear colleagues and whatever, and family, we just didn't say anything to because we we didn't know ourselves. And we just didn't want to cause chaos you know, in our families by just saying, hey, listen, this is what's happened. And and we didn't know. We re- All we knew was that someone had said, you've got three to five years to live. And, and uh, so therefore, two years in after that, it, that, was, yeah, that was looking pretty close. At the end of it, uh, late 2022 in October, they said it is getting worse. And so we want to have your permission to put you into pre-approval, pre-programming for uh, acceptance into the lung transplant situation. By which time I was kind of going, yep, you know, I was on oxygen 24-7. You know, I was any, if I went out anywhere, I had to have a portable oxygen tank with me. So I was pretty sick at the, at the end of 2022. At the beginning of 2023, I went into the, um, uh, the Vanderbilt pre-approval process for acceptance onto the uh, to the lung transplant list um and and i i would not wish the, the what what people go through on on anyone in my experience 
and uh, it, my experience is, is different than anyone else's, but just the pre-approval process, which took for me over 12 weeks, was brutal, was absolutely, utterly brutal in terms of all the, the testing, all the diagnosis that you have to go through, injections, all the scanning. You know, I had everything checked from, uh, and most of this was checked from the inside. So it's like you know, everything from head to toe, basically. And so I, you know, I had more cameras down my nose and my throat and, you know, and the little cameras in my veins and my heart checked and my lung checked and things called nuclear tests. And they're brilliant at keeping you up to date with everything that you have to go through, but you have to pass the uh, approval process before they will put you on the list for as being acceptable to the transplant board for transplant. And then once you're on the list, you you basically wait for a, a suitable donor to become, uh, for donor lungs to become available. And then it's basically, you know, it's, it's, it's toe to the, to the metal and you're in hospital very, very quickly and your transplant happens within 24 hours. It was, it was an incredibly tough first half of 2023. It sounds unbelievable, but in all the tests and all the processes that I went through for pre-approval and for acceptance, which Alicia was with me every step of the day of the way, including blood draws when they fill your, you take the blood out of you and fill up, you know, myriads of vials for weekly, twice weekly blood testing and stuff like that. It totaled over five hundred different procedures. Uh, oh my God! In in six months. And then, and then I have to say that does include blood drawing. So there was like 270 vials of blood drawn out of me in that six months. And uh, uh, my record for number of vials at Vanderbilt Labs is 42 in one sitting. You do wonder, you sit there and you go, how do you have enough, right? <laughs> where's this coming from? You know, where's it? Yeah. I'm now four months post transplant, but just this week I've been in again. I have to go in now just once a week. Yesterday, they took 10 vials. And you have to maintain an anti-reactionary uh, drug from now on, right? Anti-immunosuppressants. And, they, and there's four of them that I have to take for the rest of my life. Do you know from whom you received? Not the name. And, and that whole thing about donor lungs and, and things like that is, is a very interesting uh, topic of conversation because the, what we do know and what Alicia found out about my donor is that uh, donor donor organs are not gender dependent. So, you know, it can be, and I, I received the uh, donor lungs were from uh, a lady who passed who was between 35, 34 and 45 years old. So well, that's all I know. I know that she was a lady of that age. And after one year post-transplant, we're allowed to contact the donor's family and have that kind of connection. But they're very, very protective, and, and quite rightly so. Uh, you know, I've had the question asked about, you know, how do you feel? Is there is there some psychological, you know, barrier or, or or thing that you have to go through with regards to knowing that you have donated organs in your body? And I think it's anything from kidneys to liver to heart, lungs, or whatever. But we've had tremendous counselling with regards to the fact that that I'm alive because someone passed away. And I think that the thing that really touches Alicia and myself and my family is is that 
anyone who hears what you're doing and, and, and has anyone that's involved in um, a transplant, a lung transplant or whatever, the thing that really got us through it was to understand from the very beginning that to be a donor is a decision that someone incredibly kind and decent and loving has made themselves. And so you must respect the fact that they had the bravery to be a donor and the willingness to be a donor, to give life to someone else. And therefore, that puts a different complexion upon how you view that person and the, the, not the circumstances, but certainly the, the reality of what their family are going through and what they've endured and what they, how their demise came about. We're, we've got another eight months before we can reach out and, and just write to the, to, the, to the donor family. And we can't write direct. We have to give the letter to, to the American Donor Association, Lung Donor Association. You know, they, they, they're very, very correct and proper and, and respectful as to how that is all handled. And consequently, it's up to the donor family if they want to reach out and meet the person who was, it was donated to. So we're, we're praying that that goes, goes fine. But it's important, I think, psychologically, because I've seen a number of people really suffer from the reality of of death and life and life and death, and so you've got to you've got to be able to deal with that um, psychologically. Uh, that you can. The sad thing for me is is that you know they one of the things that that also happens after you're transplanted is that you you cannot drink alcohol again for the rest of your life. You know, so I'm having to deal with all this shit on my own. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. Does, has it changed how you see life, firstly? And secondly, I'm curious, I'm sure everyone has asked you this, but has someone, have you developed any new likes, food likes or, or dislikes or any kind of thing that seems separate from you, but now of you? Well, I am, I'll never be able to eat a Hawaiian pizza again in my life. So that's and that's a, that's a real bummer because I love Hawaiian pizzas, um, but I'm not allowed to um, eat certain things or drink certain things. Not allowed to eat pineapple. Not allowed to eat real salty things. I can't. I'm not allowed. I've been banned from sushi, and I loved drinking wine. And my wife and I enjoyed uh, our life of 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 traveling and, and, and socializing and whatever. But literally last February, I think it was Dr. Norfolk um, at Vanderbilt was um, explaining that, you know, as, as of the end of March that year, I had to have no sign of alcohol in my system or I wouldn't be accepted onto the, the pre-approval process for transplant. You know, by the, by the beginning of March, April, don't you you won't you know just have your last glass of wine because you can't have any show up in your in your tests so literally it was it was february the 28th last year and i i remember it as as clear as day i was standing in front of the refrigerator i just said to alicia that's it you know i'm if if i'm going to have to stop at the end of march i might as well stop now you know and uh, so i just i that was it i haven't had a, a drink of alcohol wine or anything uh, ever since have you developed any weird cravings? No, but I should. I really should ask that question. I, there's nothing, nothing that I'm eating that I could say that I didn't eat 
before or or it has manifested itself as an increased craving or something like that the one thing that it did do is it is is the fact that i lost so much weight i mean i lost 48 pounds in a year the one thing they did do is kind of make me a bit crazy about you know making sure i was getting food and i was adding on weight and and whatever primarily because i did get so close to the cutoff line and that that freaked me and also i saw myself and i thought you know i looked like uh, i looked like i'd been chopped in half i i became perhaps a little bit more obsessive about you know breakfast lunch and dinner uh, and i've got to cut back on that now because my cholesterol's gone up and i think i've eaten too much pudding <laughs> How do you see life differently, if differently at all? I mean, you've always had a joie de vivre and a, a, a true light in your eyes. Has anything shifted at all for how you see life? Not really, because I've always, I've always had this Irish attitude of life as being an incredible gift, you know. And I can't remember who said it, but it was, um, you know, I spent billions of years being dead. And, uh, and I've only been alive for a very short period of time, but those billions of years had no effect upon me whatsoever. So, so I'm alive now, so I'm going to just, you know, love it and live it. And I've always had the attitude, a lot of it is to do with faith. Uh, I've always had the attitude that it is, it's such a gift. It's just to be alive. You know, and I don't mean to be standing on top of the mountain preaching at anyone, but it's, it, if you think about the chances of just being alive, just the whole process. The idea of me sitting here today talking to Susan Ruth, you know, and in these circumstances, all the things that have had to happen in history for this this to happen, you know, no one can tell me that faith doesn't play a part in that or, or that destiny doesn't play a part in it. And so I've always been of the attitude that there is a destiny. I am I'm God-led. And, uh, and things happen for a reason. I've been asked about uh, what I remember about the actual surgical process and whatever. And the answer is basically nothing. You know, I basically went in um, after being, after Leisha and I receiving the phone call that they had donor lungs. I was literally in the hospital within two hours, three hours. Um, they had to wait until the lungs were tested to be, to be an absolute match for me. And then once that was that process was done, you know, they filled me full of happy juice and I was gone. You know, <laughs> you know, and I and I literally smiled my way into the um into the operating theater. Uh, because as God is my witness, my my view was, you know, I'm either gonna come through this and be back with Alicia, which is brilliant, you know, or I'm not, and I'll be I'll be in heaven with my mother and my and my sister. So it it was I, I kind of you know, the whole process of uh, the surgery, I've never asked any questions about or anything like that. But I do remember at some stage, and on, and I don't know what day it was, but I remember kind of being in some ethereal floating mist somewhere and thinking to myself, well, if I can feel this, I must still be alive. <laughs> so... Because I didn't know where I was, but evidently I was trying to come out of anesthesia myself. But I, they, they put me to sleep on the evening of, of September the second, and I, and I woke up on, on, on September the fourth. Unless something goes wildly incorrect or wrong or something, you don't feel it, you know. And I, I, I don't remember having any instinct 
um, coming out of it other than I made it. <laughs> I made it. It must be incredible to take a deep breath now. Oh, that was it. I mean, that's the other question was what was your first, you know, feeling? It was it was I could breathe without having this little motor beside me. And again, I have so much to thank uh, my darling wife for because she basically, you know, gerrymandered the oxygen machines in the house so that I could get oxygen at full amount um, wherever I was in the house. I was just so grateful to get through and come out the other side and just, and then, you know, they stick you in ICU for a little while and then they get you on your feet as soon as they possibly can. And look at you now. Yeah. You know, and I was in, I was in Vanderbilt for a month and how incredibly talented these, these young um, nurses and caregivers and, and physical training people, the whole recovery unit, you know, just amazing young people. And they were all dedicated and, and, and talented. I had the most extraordinary, I think Alicia would agree that we both had the most extraordinary experience have, being cared for both as a patient and as a caregiver. You're so lucky that you had that privilege too, yeah. because many people don't. And I cannot even imagine the costs of such procedures. Uh, hopefully your insurance was exceptional. Well, the insurance was amazing. Uh, but also, you know, I lucked out uh, at the fact that I'd gone past the age of 65 when this happened. And so yeah. I had Medicare. Bear in mind when they first... Um, uh, diagnosed me with IPF, um, they put me on an anti-fibrotic drug um, called OFEV, O-F-E-V. And it is, it is a drug that is um, designed to slow the process and the development of fibrosis and uh, an, an immune suppressant um, drug uh, to, to obviously suppress the immune system so that uh, the other drugs would work. But just in that 18 months, two years, up until the testing period started, pre-transplant, those drugs were costing nearly 14000 a month. And um, thankfully, the majority of that was covered by our, our Cigna, Medicare, and the Vanderbilt Trust. So it's, um, you know, we were very, very lucky. But the cost and I don't think I'm talking out of out of tune because you can you can research this online. But the cost of my double lung transplant from literally, and this is only from uh, from the from the end of August um, up until now, is over 1.8 million dollars. Wow, Jeez. it's an extraordinary undertaking. And and of course, people argue one way or another why whether that's a that's a, 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 a responsible or an irresponsible or a, a whatever cost uh, because you know there are places in the world that you can get it a, a lot cheaper and me I'm, I'm actually you know because I'm a green card holder a U, US resident but I'm also a, a British citizen so you know if push had come to shove I could have gone back to England and got it under the National Health Service but I, I may not have survived the weight for that. Does any of the money get given back to the family who provided? I don't know. I think there is some form of support system, uh, but we uh, have to be honest, hand on heart. We've never asked that question. You know, it would be interesting because if 
For example, I said, donate my body to whomever, and then my eyes went somewhere, my heart went somewhere, whatever, that my family might get some of the compensation out of that gigantic chunk of money. It would be interesting to look into that. It would be a very good question to ask. Um, and I think that, you, you you know, the thing is, you know, you can't hide the truth online now, even though you can find as many untruths as you want. But sure. at the same time, you can, you can research things like that and get pretty... I researched how much it cost myself because I was fascinated. I thought, you know, there's so many different um, amounts that are bandied about. The research that I got tallied almost to the $100 to the summary of the bill uh, paid uh, that we got from the insurance company. Yeah, I had surgery a couple of years ago that when the bill came, it was 30, 30 pages thick. It- <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> well, it's, it is, it's jaw-dropping. It is, you know, when you look, when and when they itemize it, and you realize it's just extraordinary, really. But um, but I'm so glad that you're here, and you're alive, and you're healthy, and you've got new lungs with shiny, shiny shoes on them. And for those of you wondering about the pineapple, I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Things like pineapple, grapefruit, all these can counter be counterintuitive to medicine, and that's probably why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a big book that they send you home with with a big file file book, and it has a lot of do's and don'ts and do's and don'ts and do's and don'ts, and and you think it's all too much information until you get three months into it, and you realise that it is vital. You know, because absolutely itself up. So, uh, you know, it's it's now. I, Alicia's always saying to me, I don't read enough books. You know, well, I've now read this one three times. So, <laughs> well, again, I'm so glad you're here. I adore you. I adore Alicia. Yeah. Please give her my love, and I really appreciate you sharing all of this. Oh, I'm I'm more than happy. I just think that uh, for me, it wasn't even a frightening experience. It was something that I think once you realize that something terminal is happening in your life, then I think it's not grabbing onto anything. It's basically, you know, I'm I'm going to go for life. You know, I'm, I'll do everything I can. I may not make it, but I'm going to do everything I possibly can, and uh, and that's what uh, that's what keeps people strong. Yeah, amen to that. I love you. I love you too, my dear. It's so good to see you. It's wonderful to see you too, and thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.